This episode is sponsored by Airbnb. The focus of season three is all about how art and creativity can be used to bring about social change, combating racism, discrimination, and ultimately finding beauty through justice. Airbnb's mission is to help create a world where people can belong anywhere, and they wanted to support these conversations. And throughout the season, I'll be featuring some of their actions in this space. So stay tuned for that. Okay, let's start the show. Sadiso, a musician, songwriter, producer and composer. I also teach. I'm fascinated by process, how we make what we make, why we make what we make. As a musician, I'm always learning from and inspired by other creatives, other musicians, artists, the arts itself, people. In short, life all inform the music I make. And I think that learning from others enriches not only our own art, but the arts. And why holding up the ladder? Well, because we're all trying to get somewhere and I think we build something stronger if we help each other. If we hold up the ladder rather than pull it up from under us as we climb. I'll be talking to all kinds of creatives about process, lessons learned, things that inspire us, the music we're listening to, what makes us who we are and the help we've had along the way. So join me as we climb, holding up the ladder. For me, that really kind of is part of my spirit and soul because I've come from, I, I was born in a geographical space and time, but I, but I exist across diasporic experiences historically. My mother's father was Asian. So my, my, my genetic heritage goes back to West Africa and to India, whereas my, whereas my cultural kind of space is in the late 21st 20th century and the early 21st century in Europe and North America. So I felt that kind of homelessness. And I, you know, I left home at 17, but I never really had a mother and father in the sense that, the, in the classic sense of being brought up by mum and dad. So I never really had a home. In this week's episode of Holding Up the Ladder, we're talking about the idea of radical homelessness. Where do we find home? Is home a physical or geographical location? Is it a state of being or is it both? And how does this idea of home manifest itself within the context of black queer masculinity? To help me answer some of these complex questions, I'm joined by artist and filmmaker Topher Campbell. But I was also the person who was trying to articulate an existence uh, through a masculinity that was, again, codified by only two or three different ways of being black. Uh, you can be a thug, you can be a magical Negro, you can be, you know, um, a criminal. What else could you be? I don't know. There are not many things you could be. Um, and people don't understand how radical the shift in blackness has been over the last 15 years. Topher Campbell's practice spans broadcasting, theatre, performance, writing, experimental film and site-specific work. In 2000, he co-founded Rucker's Federation, a black queer arts collective with photographer Ajamu X. Topher has made critically acclaimed films, including The Homecoming, 
a meditation on art, masculinity and sexuality, featuring commentary by academic and cultural studies pioneer Professor Stuart Hall, his 2014 film Fetish, a collaboration with Mercury Prize winners Young Fathers, was shot on the streets of New York. Topher's current film, Encounters, is a meditation on HIV stigma and desire for art organisation Visual Aids and the Whitney Museum in New York. To read Topher's full bio, head to the link in the podcast blurb. So when I talk about pro-black, it's that deep. When I talk about homelessness, radical homelessness, it's about where do we find our home? We can choose our home. We can choose our home culturally, you know, uh, as an African, a man of African descent. We can choose our home in terms of our sexuality. We can choose our home in terms of our, the, the people that we commune with, the kind of different communities we have. And we can choose our home artistically and politically as well. So the idea of home is both a fixed and fluid space. We talk about pro-blackness, pro-blackness that doesn't mean anti-white. It's not anti-anything, it's pro. It is, as he and Ajamu X sought to do with Ruckus Federation, moving away from the idea of black people as victims and more about redefining and positioning themselves publicly. When you centre blackness and there's no white narrative in that or white presence in that, white people get very nervous and they think, oh, it's anti-white. And it's not even that. So it's not even having a conversation with oneself in relation to the mainstream. It's having conversations between ourselves. We interrogate the idea of home, of belonging. And for Topher, belonging doesn't mean approval, but rather, I quote, how you bear witness to your existence. We talk about why he chose to walk through the streets of New York naked for his 2014 film Fetish a kind of artistic response to the police murder of 12-year-old Tamir Rice in 2014. But when I heard that a 12-year-old boy had been shot dead after being identified with a gun, and it took, you know, when you look at the video, which is one of the few videos I did watch, police car rolls up and literally, the guy literally just gets up and shoots. There's no, there's nothing. And the notion that this young boy was identified as a man you know, who's a kid playing with guns, really got to me because I used to do that. <laughs> I love playing bone, I love playing guns, and I was tall, you know, I was a tall kid. Topher loves to walk through cities. This idea that something so mundane can be for the black body a surveyed, unsafe, violent place. As Topher explains, the black body is never neutral. I want to move away from the good, bad, positive, negative. I'm just talking about the ways in which the black body can be operated on or operates and creates fear, fascination, desire, repulsion, all at the same time. And I experienced that and I wanted to make work that kind of reflected that. We talk about story, about sexuality, about sex, about pleasure, about why he chose to call his forthcoming memoir Batiman, an extremely homophobic term that, to be honest, even saying it to you now, I find it hard to say. We talk about pain and in that kintsugi way, the Japanese art of mending to make new so that we're left with something more beautiful than before, that kintsugi way that is threading itself throughout these episodes. We examine some of the broken pieces of Topher's own story, his personal story that he explores in his memoir, but also the wider story of blackness, of masculinity, of black queer masculinity. I love how the arts brings people together. I try through these interviews to invite people who work in spaces I know little about and or who I know will bring a unique perspective. I always learn something new. But this episode marked me in a way I can't quite put my finger on yet. I love Topher. 
So much so that you'll even hear me cry at the end. It wasn't planned, you know, how can you plan to cry? But as he was talking, I could feel the tears coming and it didn't feel right to try and restrain them. They weren't sad tears, I promise. Maybe I was moved, maybe, I don't know. As I say, I'm still chewing on it. A few explanations. For you non-UK listeners, we mentioned the term BAME or B-A-M-E, which stands for Black Asian Minority Ethnic, a much contested UK civil service acronym for basically non-white people. Contested because it's the idea of othering people, that being white is the standard from which everyone else's identity emerges, and also it's about the power to name oneself rather than someone else naming you. Topher also mentions a quote from the African-American playwright Ndesha Idame Holland, either you throw the bull or the bull can throw you. It's bull like the animal, not ball like the toy. Just in case you couldn't decipher it. Okay, let's start the show. Topher Campbell, it is my great joy to have you with me today. Hello, Matsy. It's my eternal pleasure to have be here. I mean, it's uh, it's a real honour, and I was very excited to speak to you because I've I've listened to and learned from and um, been inspired by the other artists and people you've been talking to on your podcast. So thank you so much for inviting me. Wonderful. It was so interesting um, researching your work um, in preparation for this interview. But you are truly an artist in the in the truest sense, broadcaster, filmmaker, you work in theatre, you're a director in performance, writing, experimental film, you're an author, you do site-specific work. But one of the reasons I wanted to have you on today is because the theme of this particular season is really about, I wanted to talk to people about race in the light of everything that's gone on with George Floyd. I wanted to talk to people about how they use their art to to challenge, to bring about social change. And when I think of you, I think of you as a disruptor. (laughs) Um, I don't know if it's on purpose, but it's it's just how you move in the world. When we're talking about blackness, queerness, masculinity and race, and I... I want you to, let's start at the beginning for those that don't know this, your work and who you are and the incredible stuff that you do. How, who is Topher? What's your origin story? How do you get to this place? (laughs) What's my origin story? Well, I mean, you know, there's lots of versions of the origin story because I am a storyteller after all. But I mean, just on some some basic facts, I was born in the Midlands. I was born in Coventry, which is a small town in, in the UK. Um, and um, I'm, a ba- I'm a, what would have been called a bastard child. I'm somebody who was born um, when my mother had, <clears throat> had divorced her first husband and had an affair with somebody unknown, um, my father. And, uh, and then, unfortunately, my mother had a breakdown when I was about one years old. And uh, so that meant that I went into care. Um, uh, so from there on, I uh, stayed in care until about... 13 and a half, where I was rejoined by my mother for about five years. And um, after that, I kind of left home for university somehow, somehow. And so that story in itself is a, a quite a big story. Um, but I got into the arts, really, because I do remember as a, as a kid, as a, uh, as a teenager, that the three things I really loved about, about school were basketball, um, writing, and as in the English, the English classes and literature, and... Um, and uh, theatre, because our school had a theatre. So I was one of the kind of show-offs at the school. And I tended to be cast in, from a very young age, into, into things, because I just enjoy showing off. 
<laughs> so there's a lot more, but <laughs> it could take a long time to speak about that. But yeah, that's that's basically what my space, that my how I entered the world, mm. and uh, yeah, and it and, and like a lot of people who I guess were born in the UK um, and have diasporic origins. Obviously, my, my 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 roots go to the United States, Caribbean, obviously the UK. I think there is, I'm from a generation who's all about sort of pioneering and, and defining mm. um, the space of blackness in this country. Mm. Yeah. So let's start there. Pioneering and defining the space of blackness in this country. To you, what is it? I mean, I think it's a continual exploration, but I feel how, what does it look like here compared to, say, America? And you were both African-American and you're also British. You know, your father was American. Tell me about that. Well, I think it's a very big question. Actually, I don't yeah. know if I can answer that. I mean, yeah. I'm not, I, can't, I can't claim myself to be defining anything other than by my presence. But mm-hmm. there are a generation above me, I would say, would include, if you think about artists like Sonia Boyce or Isaac Julian, who are, I would say, my older brothers and sisters, who would be much more in, you know, uh, in that space, they could claim that space by the by work they did. Um, I was inspired by people like that, but I think I think I think particularly as a, as a queer man of color in the UK, I think that's definitely something I can claim because I think there were not visible out black queer people. I mean, lesbians, gays, bisexuals, trans people hmm. in the UK until the nineties and and noughties, and I'm part of that generation. Um, I think before there were many people who were obviously black LGBTQ people. Obviously, there were people that that there were, but in terms of the sort of saying we're here, so I think there's, that's the way I feel that I can claim a space of definition. Um, and and both in terms of the work I did, the very first film I did was when I was very young, was in 1995, and um, and it and and it's become something of a kind of like a uh, like a. Uh, a love letter to the past that a lot of people from lots of different kinds of communities can kind of buy into because they didn't understand that this this kind of life, which I was living as a young man and, and my friends, was possible at that time. So I think that's a really important intervention. And I think the, I think for me, more than just race, I think the, 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 the intervention or the kind of the space of race and sexuality and gender mm. is even more disruptive to mainstream society mm creatively, artistically, politically, and sexually. Mm. And I think that's that's something that I can really kind of talk to. Mm. Well, so so let's talk about Ruckus, Ruckus Federation okay. that you started with Ajamu X in uh, 2000. Yeah. I was reading a, 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 an interview or a, a paper that was written and you said, I'm going to quote here, Ruckus is not about saying we're victims. We're very much about redefining and replacing ourselves publicly. And we're not anti-white or anti-anything. We're pro. So so talk to me about, you know, even the word ruckus. Do you know what I mean? Like the yeah, meaning yeah, of yeah, that yeah, word. Yeah. Well, for those of ruckus, as in, as in, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, my mum's Jamaican, but like, I get teased because I can't do a Jamaican accent because I was brought up by white people. But but anyway, ruckus is, uh, ruckus federation is the full name of the collective myself and Ajamo X created. And that collective was a collective of two at the beginning was, and it was really came out of like a couple of guys who were young and wanted to sort of just have some fun creatively because a lot of the things that we were experiencing in terms of the way that we move through the world, or I can say for the way I, I move through the world, was that we were 
we were poor black people, you know what I mean? We were like, oh, we were poor black. And all, all we were like, as black men, particularly for, we were either like, we were like thugs, you know, we were, or we were like, you know, and there was a lot of racism on the, the gay scene. There's a lot of racism in the mainstream society. There's a lot of homophobia in black communities. Not more so, there just was. So, and, and then of course there was the great, you know, HIV and AIDS epidemic, which was raging and was killing a lot of my friends. So there was a whole kind of like, there was very little space, you know, for fun or joy. And so Ruckus was about that. It was like, yeah, come on, we want to just have some fun. We're artists. We want to be playful. We want to be sexual. We want to be upfront. But also we chose Ruckus Federation as a name because Ruckus is the name of, uh, well, Ruckus is to cause a ruckus. So I going back to the, the, to, to the Jamaican, to cause a ruckus, to make noise, to make up, to be mischievous. Um, and also Ruckus was a, a porn star from the 80s, a, a black male porn star with a 10-inch appendage. Oh and, um, and, uh, and so there was a playfulness around that, this kind of double entendre thing. And the Federation, well, like I was very much a university kid. I was very pretentious. I was very much into, you know, European art movements like the Vorticists or the Futurists or the Surrealists. You know, and and they were just like two or three guys, you know, in a bar somewhere in, in you know, in, in Milan or, or Paris or the Bloomsbury set here in London. And I just thought, well, why can't we call ourselves something bigger than what we are? So that was a federation. And also I'm a Trekkie. So there's a kind of, this, it was just fun and playful. But at the same time, it was political because we wanted to carve out a space that was not about the victim narrative, that we are people who are put upon Defined by our, by our by what happens to us because of our so-called deprivation, and we wanted to move that shift away from that because it was just too narrow. In terms of masculinity as well, it's just too. It just didn't speak to the kinds of experiences of joy and pleasure and community that we were experiencing as young men, um, and so that's part of it, really. Mm. And then, yeah, it's so interesting because th- then you did this film called Homecoming. And mm. and I and I what I watched it and and what I it's that unapologeticness and 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 also this sort of merging because you have Stuart Hall in there he said something that really struck me so um, he said the notion of identity is closely related to one's idea of home so if you don't have a settled home he says a quote the question of identity is always being interrogated mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so. So I want to sort of delve a bit further. You make this film Homecoming. You've got Ruckus Federation, all the other work that you're doing, how you're sort of interrogating what it means to be black, male, queer, an artist, and and how that manifests in your work. Okay, so going back to what slightly stepping back slightly, you talked about the pro-black thing. I just want to just bring that. Because one of the things I'm trying to, it's about centering blackness. You know, when you center blackness and there's no white narrative in that or white presence in that, white people get very nervous and they think, oh, it's anti-white. And it's not even that. So it's not even having a conversation with white oneself, oneself in relation to the mainstream. It's having conversations between ourselves. And that also relates to what you're saying, because Stuart also said, you know, also talked about radical homelessness. And so, I mean, for me, that really kind of, is part of my spirit and soul because I've come from, I, I was born in a geographical space and time, but I, but I exist across diasporic 
experiences historically. My mother's father was Asian. So my, my, my genetic heritage goes back to West Africa and to India, whereas my, whereas my cultural kind of, uh, you know, um, spaces in the late 21st 20th century and the early 21st century in Europe and North America. So, so I felt that kind of homelessness. And I, you know, I left home at 17, but I never really had a mother and father in the sense that, the, in the classic sense of being brought up by mum and dad. So I never really had a home. I was in a children's home. I was fostered and I was, you know, I went to my mum's home tem- temporarily. Um, so this whole notion of home really is, is, it's not about I'm going to interrogate it. It's more about I inhabit it. You know, this homelessness, mm-hmm. I inhabit it mm-hmm. or have inhabited it all my life. And so I feel much more alive and more awake when I'm traveling and when I'm around, when I'm moving than I am when I'm stationary. And, um, uh, and the sense of, um, you know, not really being here. Mm-hmm. So, and as an artist, it's just, it gives you that perspective of being able to sort of see across the boundaries of space and time, being able to understand that the way that we are in this moment is a moment in time. Mm. It is not the way things are. So the capitalist white supremacist space that we are in that's been that's been kind of, you know, that has emerged out of the enslaved period of the uh, five or six hundred years ago. It's five or six hundred years. Mm. In terms of West African culture, that's a blip. <laughs> you know? mm. So so we need to start stop thinking in so when I talk about pro-black, it's that deep. When I talk about homelessness radical homelessness it's about where do we find our home we can choose our home we can choose our home we can choose our home uh culturally you know uh, as an african a man of african descent we can choose our home in terms of our sexuality we can choose our home in terms of our the, the people that we commune with the kind of different communities we have and we can choose our home artistically and politically as well mm. so the idea of home is both a fixed and fluid space. And I think what Stuart was, what I loved about Stuart when I met him, and I didn't know Stuart, Ajamu introduced him to me. I wasn't really the intellectual, you know, I was like, you know, I was like the kid who's like, you know, Ajamu was more sort of, you know, in a sense, had had more kind of a sense of, as a, in terms of our, our artistic friendship, had more of a sense of direction in that space. So I, I was very much a, a theatre man, you know, I, I wanted to make theatre and, 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 and tell stories through film and theatre. Mm. Um, I wasn't necessarily a cultural critic type guy. It's not really, it wasn't really my thing. Um, but, so, but in meeting Stuart, um, I kind of got to understand a bit more about how to um, contextualise and place one's experience within the black British cultural and historical mm. kind of mm-hmm. continuum. Mm-hmm. And it's not something that is, you know, that is easily digestible because it's shifting and it's, it's not about one definition of blackness or one definition of queerness. I've got, yeah, I've got several thoughts. You know, so you talk about this finding home almost, like you say, it's not a ge- geographical place. You feel most at home, sort of, I guess, in a sense of movement. I- I've been thinking about belonging and if that is how how central to sort of, what am I trying to say? How central to you feeling you belong is all of this movement and is needing to belong something 
that that is really sort of vital to who you are, your work, and how you navigate in the world? It's a good question. I mean, I'm, I'm, I've been writing a memoir called Batman, which, which has been going on for a while, I could tell you, because it's difficult to write. Um, I'm not necessarily naturally a, 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 a naturally a writer. I'm more of an image maker. But um, uh, and one of the significant moments in my life was when I was seven years old and um, my mum, who I hadn't, hadn't sort of met, I had no memory of, was supposed to come to, to an open day where, where all the young, all the kids, would, their, par- their parents, their birth parents, would, or one or two of them would come and visit them. And, um, and this was a big deal. You know, the, 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 the house parents are saying, this is going to happen, it's going to be a big deal. It's a moment in time. It's fantastic watershed moment for my life. I'm actually going to meet my mum. But, and I, I waited and the other people, the kids came, their parents, them, everyone, went, the afternoon went and went and went. And like uh, late afternoon, it must be late afternoon, you know, uh, one of those rainy, wet, wet Sundays, Saturday, sorry, uh, she, but she didn't arrive. So, and it kind of stayed with me. And, I, and it said afterwards in my reports that I didn't talk about my family ever again. That I just stopped talking about the family. So when you ask that question, there are two, two, there are two ways in which I enter it. One is a very personal wound that happened to me at quite a difficult time, seminal time, seven years old, which made me reject the idea that I belonged because <laughs> there's nowhere to belong because nobody wanted to take me. But at the same time, there's this also this kind of, you know, like struggle for being seen, if you know what I mean, as a black queer person or as a black person. Uh, to be heard, but on my own terms, as opposed to on on the terms, again, rather than being defined by others, how do we define ourselves? So how do we get us, how do we create a sense of our belonging? How do we carve out our space? Audrey Lord said we've got to write ourselves into history, you know, and and, and I guess that's what, you know, I didn't know that, <laughs> but that's, I guess that's what you end up thinking, realising you're doing. So belonging is really important. Not belonging as in approval, <laughs> That ain't interesting to me. I can't give. Um, I, I don't mind about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, but um, in terms of how you position, how you bear witness to your existence, how I bear witness to my existence, that's kind of the belonging I'm interested in. Because, and I'm saying I claim this because radical homelessness. Because you know, it's not in opposition to. If you've had a you know a comfortable upbringing with mum and dad, or not a comfortable upbringing with mum and dad, or whatever the you know combination of that could be, um, but my perspective, my experience has been one where the, the the family unit, the idea of being in a family, is a bizarre and strange thing. <laughs> it's kind of almost like anthropological. As a kid, I remember going when I was in children's home. I'd go to my friend's house, and I'd be like. Oh, this is weird. <laughs> you got your own room, and you all you live together, and you got the same name. <laughs> it was as a child that was my thing. I was like, that's how I saw it. I was like, wow, so what's going on here? Because mm. I I was kind of I lived all my life as a bunch of strange kids who had mm. had no relation to me, and all, all white by the way. So um, so yeah, so so when I met, when I encountered Stuart's work, that's what happened, and when I encountered Ajamu. In a sense, I was talking to him about this the other day. John was like a proxy person, <laughs> although you know he's his, he's his own artist in his own right. But that's I think why we get we got on so well is that he was like a proxy. He was more I could I could give him I could speak through him because he had more of a even at that age. Well, he was 
Uh, even then, he had a kind of a real developed sense of his his his, his art. So that the homecoming was before Ruckus. I always say it was our first collaboration. I mean, it was my film and I made it. Um, but but it was just me going, oh yeah, you. I know what you're doing. I want people to know because I want to be doing the same thing. Mm. And also, I wanted to do it humorously because one of the things that I continuously thematically will go on about in terms of sex and sexual representation mm. is that we've got to stop talking about this stuff in a way that makes it feel like it's some kind of a heavy thing. We yeah. have sex and we have fun, mm-hmm. whatever sexuality we are. Mm-hmm. And that's it's not gay sex or straight sex mm-hmm. or lesbian sex. It's just sex. Mm-hmm. And we all have it and it's fun and, you know, and sometimes funny and some kind of, you know, slightly weird and sometimes incredibly kind of like enabling and, mm-hmm. and, um, and empowering. So, you know... Let's take away that narrative away from the, the idea, you know, the big, the bigger narratives of abuse, and you know, and all those things that people and 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 you know and um, you know assault, which are, are happening and are horrible. But there's also this other narrative, mm. pleasure and desire, mm. and and which we can inhabit, which is not 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 part of that. Which is so that's that's where the disruption comes from. Mm. It comes from this notion that let's stop talking about it only in socio-political and economic, mm. sociological ways. Let's talk about it as humans, you know. And that's why I liked about the homecoming. And it's also centering queerness and blackness in spaces like Brixton is, for those people who are listening, is one of the international kind of, you know, it's a bit like Harlem to, to, to the US. It's so one of the spaces of great historical importance for the black communities in the UK and around Europe. It's birthed a lot of interesting voices mm-hmm. and mo- and movements and ideas uh, and institutions from the black community and, and individuals, and uh, it's the space that continues to 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 resist to mm-hmm. a certain extent mm-hmm. the kinds of ways in which this blandardization of um, of the culture mm-hmm. has kind of you know crept in over the last twenty years through gentrification, mm-hmm. physical gentrification, and mm-hmm. cultural gentrification. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but to put queerness at the centre of that and black queerness at the centre of that was quite important. To put two black queer men walking down the street hand in hand mm. in wannabe boy of the time, as it used to be called, and the other in leathers and, leathers and chains, walking down Railson Road, mm. which was the front line of the, 90, of the 80s uprisings, yes. <laughs> was, was, you know, that is the point. Yes. You know, move, shift the narrative away from either or mm-hmm. binary it's a complex space mm-hmm. and I, I love I love that about that that work mm-hmm. and and I think that's what I mean about disruptive I, I find what what I really love about you is your like you say you you don't subscribe to trauma or victimhood you just make your stuff but it's still like you know two fingers up at, you know, what's going on kind of thing at at the norm. But again, this thing about pro-black, you are, we are talking to each other. You're you're not asking for permission. This thing of uh, we need a seat at the table, you've always just gone and made your own stuff. And it's not even a table. It's some futuristic thing that's, you know, come out of the the imagination of Topher Campbell. And I, and I love you for that. Um, 
I, I, I want to talk to you about the fact that you have a memoir, that you're writing this book and that you've called this book Batty Man. That's what I mean. Again, for those that don't know, perhaps Batty Man was, is really originally a very homophobic and also Caribbean, it's a Jamaican word, speaking of, you know, gay men, um, queer men, and you have entitled your book Batty Man. <laughs> so, and, and I remember that whole, uh, that incident. Was it in the late 90s, Shabaranks and all of this? Yeah. So, so Noughties. Yeah, yeah, the noughties. So talk to me a bit about this now. There's so many different ways to talk about it. Because I come from so many so many different spaces, yeah. you know. Yeah. I don't. It's not just one thing or another. So, um, first of all, I, I'm, I love literature. So I, I'm a I'm a reader, an avid reader. I, books have been my parents, you know. How to how to live as I've seen through books, um, you know, and I still do books, books, books. And the two two of the authors that I really kind of was impressed by when I was younger, biographically speaking, were was Dick Gregory's Nigger. Mm-hmm. And William Burroughs queer, right. um, and then also I loved the Scum Manifesto mm-hmm. um, because they were they were just spaces in which people the people the authors were just saying this is what the truth is of my reality, and it, that's all you need to know. Mm-hmm. And they, they weren't it wasn't it wasn't they weren't they're not so they weren't social scientists they weren't they're not they weren't trying to kind of curry favour. Uh, and, and William Burroughs particularly was talking, was the way he, he wrote <clears throat> Coya was in keeping with how he wanted to express his ideas. So it was streams of consciousness mm. and stuff. But also the titles, Coya, Scum Manifesto, and uh, Nigger. Nigger was written by, and I'm saying the word, uh, I hope I'm, don't, I'm, mm. I'm not triggering anybody when I say that word. I'm only saying the title of a book mm-hmm. when I say this word was written by Dick Gregory for the same reasons, in that, that title was chosen for the same reason I'm choosing Batman, because yeah. it was written in the 1960s by Dick Gregory, the com- who was a comedian who predated, you know, Bill Cosby and, <clears throat> and various others, um, and, um, uh, and was, you know, really controversial, mm. you know, in-your-face comedian turned politician. And I'm just doing the same thing, mm. the, 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 the word Batman. I'm, mm. I'm saying... You know, it's still you know even even today you know it's not it maybe it sounds it's an old sounds like an old word but it's still a word that that can cause offence and people are still shouted that on the streets mm-hmm. of London, New York, Nigeria, and Lagos. You know, people are still shouted that people still say these things. Um, and and um, but I also wanted to claim it. You know, just kind of like go. Yeah, man, I'm a batty man, whatever. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's kind of like. So what? Mm. Going back to how we think about sex and sexuality and othering, the idea that, you know, sexual pleasure is somehow ringed off if it's between two women or between two men or between a man and a woman. It's somehow there's a difference <laughs> in the way that we experience pleasure mm-hmm. depending on who we have sex with. Mm-hmm. Well, we've all got the same kind of bodies and the same kind of bits and pieces that come about. So there's that side of thing, but also I wanted to, to I wanted to get, I wanted to get a, do a book that gets read, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. I, wanted, I wanted to get read, you know, it needs to be read, um, and also it's surprising because it, it's it's 
I'm nobody, you know. I'm saying nobody. Who, who am I? But it's it's it's. But how do you bear witness to who you are? And and this is one way of doing so. Um, and it comes out of just my reading lots of other biographies and lots of other witnessing lots of other uh, lives and short stories and just wanting to say, hey, I'm. I, this is kind of what I'm, I'm. I went through, and I'm part of. You know, in the UK, I keep going about generation, but there's a kind of what was it? Generation? What was it Generation Y? No, what is it? I don't know what they say, but... This generation is Z, and then yeah. there was Y before it, Millennials, and then Boomers, I can't remember. Well, the ones after the Boomers, anyway. Yeah. Um, so I guess I wanted to intervene in the historical narrative of the UK by saying, yeah, okay, so you've got all these other stuff happening, but this happened also. And I was, I saw it. I was a, I was a footnote in history. I saw stuff that... That I was, I was at the party when X, Y, and Z was there. I was doing. I was the guy who was there, but I was also the person who was trying to articulate an existence uh, through a masculinity that was again codified by only two or three different ways of being black. Mm. Uh, you can be a thug. You can be a magical Negro. You can be, you know, um, a criminal. Um, what else could you be? I don't know. There are not many things you could be. Um, and people don't understand how radical the shift in blackness has been over the last 15 years mm. in relation to the bandwidth that we're allowed in terms of our existence. Mm. Part of that's technological, part of that's generational. But it's not the first ways in which it happened. So the, the book is really kind of a, a very private, very quiet Honest, hopefully honest, bearing of witness. Mm. It's difficult to write because I'm not I'm not really a writer, as I said earlier. I'm not really it takes a lot of time to sit down and write, you know what I'm saying? Mm. I'm a I'm a team player, I make I make films and I make theatre. So I like being around people and I like working with people. I like I love the I love all that. And so to sit on my own for hours and hours and hours, you know, unpacking the emotional kind of like, you know, complexities of my past are quite, it's a quite a difficult thing for me to do. Um, but I'm determined to, um, it's, it, it, I got a lot of encouragement because it, it, it was shortlisted for an award. Fantastic. Some of it was shortlisted for an award. So I got encouragement that, okay. And ver- various people who had read, been my readers have been quite affected by it. Mm. But, but I'm, I'm, I, I, think, I think it's important to bear witness. I agree. And I, and yeah. I think... Is it that phrase as specific as universal? I, I think there's something about you. You know, you said, "Oh, I'm a nobody," but I think, I, I think we're either all nobodies or we're all somebodies. Yeah, yeah. Do, do, do you know what I mean? Sure, uh, sure. I meant that in the sense that the space I inhabit is no more or less important than anybody else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yes, exactly. And that's yeah, why yeah. it's important yeah, to, yeah, to tell yeah. your story. Yeah. This season, you've been hearing stories of people who are using their art and or creativity to respond to social issues. And oftentimes, the response or act of resistance is in the making. It's the giving voice to, the creating opportunity and space for. And the beauty of creativity is that it's catalytic in many ways. It inspires others to respond. And this was the case with Shell, a host on Airbnb who opened up her home to people impacted by Hurricane Sandy that hit New York in 2012. 
Her generosity sparked a movement and marked the beginning of a program that allows hosts on Airbnb to provide stays for people in times of need. Since then, the program has evolved to focus on emergency response and to help provide stays to evacuees, relief workers, refugees, asylum seekers, and most recently, frontline workers fighting the spread of COVID-19. Today, that work continues under Airbnb.org, a non-profit that connects people with places to stay during times of crisis. From Australia to France, more than 100,000 hosts have offered to open up their homes and help provide accommodation to 75,000 people in times of need. You know, the concept of a right to housing is important enough to be protected by international law. Article 25 of the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights talks about protecting a right to housing, whereby, I quote, everyone has the right to a standard of living adequate for the health and well-being of himself and of his family, including food, clothing, housing and medical care and necessary social services, and the right to security in the event of unemployment, sickness, disability, widowhood, old age or other lack of livelihood in circumstances beyond his control. Psychologist Maslow talked about a hierarchy of needs, shelter being integral to our basic physiological needs like food, air and water. There are so many factors that are causing people to be displaced or lose shelter and housing. War, natural disasters, ethnic cleansing, unemployment, and then add a pandemic to that. But one host on Airbnb, if you like, holds up the ladder for her community and it inspires and shapes how an organisation not only conducts its business, but also how it engages with the communities around it to create a global network of partnerships. To find out more, head to airbnb.org or click the link in the podcast blurb. I want to talk a little bit about masculinity. I mean, we are talking about it, but you did this. um, I want to talk about your film Fetish that you did with uh, Young Fathers. Is that correct? Yeah, you collaborated with them. But also you you did this interesting articles in 2014 with Billy Bragg, the English um, musician, um, activist, you know, guy. And you talk about, I just want to, I just think it's interesting because I think, like you say, the bandwidth of blackness has expanded, but I'm always thinking about, you know, what it's like being a black man in this country. And then you add to that, we're talking about being a black queer man. So, But you say this, um, as a black person and as a gay person, I have come, I come from a very marginal place away from the rut of a perceived black person masculinity, which is very narrow, of a certain machismo, and away from mainstream ideas of the kind of, this made me chuckle, David Furnish, Elton John kind of gay respectability. And then you say, um, then you hear the heterosexual idea that you can only really be acceptable if you have a loving relationship in a nice kind of parameter around professional middle-classness. Actually, some gay lives are very messy. We get chucked out of homes. We get bullied. We can't, we don't get promoted at work. We can't choose certain professions. We can't even travel to certain places or we even get beaten and killed in certain countries. And I just, I I want you to talk to me about that, but also within the context of fetish and why you made fetish. 
And even where you made it, because you did it in New York, you could have done it in anywhere else. But I, I, I think it's interesting that you chose to make it in New York. Wow. Wow. It's interesting hearing words, words in print that can quote you back at you, especially because you've kind of evolved a bit. I wouldn't express myself in that way so much. I certainly mm-hmm. wouldn't use the word gay, but um, but I'd probably use LGBTQ or queer, yeah. and it's simply because I feel that that uh, that is probably more representative of where I sit. Mm-hmm. But and also, um, even then, using the word gay was was more acceptable than bisexual. Mm-hmm. That's kind of so. But this, that said, I think um, it's interesting. I guess one thing I've experienced all my life. And I still continue to experience. I don't know if it's just my... I, sometimes I don't know whether it's my own self-consciousness or whether it's a self-consciousness that has become much more attuned because of the kinds of experiences I've had as a black person. So I'll give you three examples. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, one example is driving a Mustang convertible in L.A., in um, meeting a police car head-on on a junction, uh, in LA, you can turn right at a stop at a stop sign, even when it's red, and then nodding to the police guy, and then and then, you know, taking the turn, and then getting stopped right. at gun gunpoint later on. God. Going home after a, a shoot in South Africa. Uh, it's very sunny, so t-shirts and jeans. Life walking onto the to the plane and being given a first class, being given upgraded to first class. Um, and actually, the exclamation, the way I was given it was, oh, here he comes, and here you are. Mm. Then getting on that plane, and then sitting in the plane and just and doing myself, and then a woman, a white woman, passes by on her way to coach and says, God, you must be famous. Wow. Because I was one of the few black faces yes. in, in the space. Then there's the experience continually that every black person, men and women, but not men, will experience walking down any average street in every West, any Western country where a, wo- a woman, particularly usually a white woman, sometimes men, either cross the road or lock their doors or hold their handbags. Mm. Walking into meetings with my white producer and... Uh, a uh, fantastic friend of mine uh, when I was running a, a company and for the first five minutes having the person on the opposite side, usually a white person, uh, of the desk addressing my producer mm. and then the punchline that my, that my producer would give was, well, I don't know the answer to that question. You've got to ask my boss. Nice. <laughs> and there was this constant, there was this moment of, of clicking of brain cells. So and my expression through the art, through the work, is that the black body is never neutral. You can't, the black body is never neutral in any space. It is by definition in the Western, in the Western world, as in, the, in Northern Europe and North America, Canada, Australia, a disruptive kind of vessel. We cannot be neutral. We're not neutral. We are neutralized. So that's my experience. So my self-consciousness I'm self. I'm literally physically self-conscious about my. I'm six foot two. Um, when I'm at weight, you know, sometimes I'm up to ninety, uh, ninety-five kg, average around eighty, eighty-five. And so I'm, and I'm also a black male, 
uh, and I'm, I'm so what I so the, the thing around the first class thing was that I also have a, a huge amount of privilege, you know, what I'm saying in terms of the way I work for the world, the power that I'm supposed to be prescribed for. So I'm not talking about this. I want to move away from the good, bad, positive, negative. I'm just talking about the ways in which the black body kind of operate can be operated on or operates and creates fear, fascination, desire, repulsion, all at the same time. And I experienced that. And I wanted to make work that kind of reflected that. Um, and I'm, I've also been confused and confounded by it. Mm. You know, I have experienced extreme reactions from people. Mm. Uh, and I have done nothing, to, nothing yeah. but stand in the space. Or have experienced or been ascribed certain attributes by people, which I really don't have. Mm. <laughs> I'm not particularly athletic. I might have an athletic build, but I'm not particularly athletic, athletically skilled. Mm. I certainly can't rap and sing. I can't, you know what I'm saying? There's lots of things. So it's, it's kind of like, it gets tiring. Mm. So fetish became a culmination of those experiences, plus the fact that when I made it in 17 into 18, I was just getting tired and tired and tired of seeing what was going on in North America and knowing from my own experiences of, of, of living while black what it was like to see what was happening when I was in South Africa or when I was in Brazil, you know, what was happening to black people, black men particularly, but lots of black women, obviously. You know, even just recently, 24 young yeah. black men have been shot dead by the police. In Brazil, in, in, in yeah. Rio de Janeiro, mm. I and and I think, I think it was Tamir Rice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was Tamir Rice. I tried to avoid, you know, the, the snuff <laughs> snuff movies you might call them, mm. as much as I possibly could. But but when I heard that a twelve year old boy had been shot dead after being identified with a gun, and it took, you know when you look at the video, which is one of the few videos I did watch, the police car rolls up. And literally, the guy literally just gets up and shoots him. There's no, there's nothing. And the notion that this young boy was identified as a man, mm. was, you know, who's a kid playing with guns, really got to me because I used to do that. <laughs> I love playing bone. I love playing guns. And I was tall, you know, I was a tall kid. Mm. And I, I just remember as a kid, up until I was 13, 14, I was like a real toy player. I was a player because, as a, you know, a player, a sexual player. I mean, as a player, as in like... Um, you know, I like to play, and it's part of what I did, and that's mm. probably why I'm a director because you play with ideas and things. You know. mm. And I can remember, I just kept thinking that could, you know, just quite basically, that could have been me. But you know, obviously, you know, being British, it was less likely, you know, because handguns are not so prevalent, and and the police, um, not all the police carry guns here. But um, yeah, it just got to me. So the compilation of these things, these experiences, and 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 witnessing what was happening, made made so made me ask the question as an artist, what can I do? Mm. And I'm, yeah, of course I go on marches. And yes, of course I'm doing things. Of, but but what else can I do? And I wanted, to, I got the opportunity to make a piece of art, make make a piece of work. So yeah, and and, and it kind of really spoke to, yeah. I mean, a lot of my life. Still is probably more so driving and cycling now, but a lot of my life, especially in my twenties, was around was was walking through cities: mm. Barcelona, Madrid, mm. Berlin, Paris, mm. New York, LA, 
London, Manchester, you know, Amsterdam. I mean, I just remember, I love walking through cities. I love walking through cities. Uh, I love architecture and I love seeing, witnessing people and seeing scenes of different kind of lives played out and Belgrade, you know. I mean, I've been, you know, I've, I've traveled a lot, you know, and, and I just love witnessing it. And, and two of the biggest cities in my life in my 20s and 30s were, is New York and London. And, and, um, and, and London is a film, you know, mm. set. Yes. <laughs> New York is a film set, yes. you know. So, so I wanted to, to do something about it. So the, this this conflation of things, you know, the violence done to to us, but also the kind of ways in which I felt liberated and free as when I used to walk through the cities, mm. which I feel less so now. <laughs> I feel more as technology, you know, cameras and surveillance culture has taken over mm. as as we went through two thousand and one, and and then and then it just kind of just the shadow of surveillance started to kind of just really kind of fall. And is now dropped heavily on the cultures yeah. that we inhabit, and I just, but I, I was young enough in the late nineties to, to not see to, to be to predate that. I used to run around like a free boy, mm. and I loved it. And it was, and it, so I wanted some of that spirit in the film, the defiance that of of and the power of that. Mm. And then there's other things, you know. There's other fun things like Beyonce's "Crazy in Love," you know, the yes. kind of, you know, the pumping of the queer black, you know drag queens and performers in like harmonica sunbeam in in Escolitos, which has been closed down in New York City. You know, the the what the catwalk of Soho, you know, old Compton Street, you know, the, the whole me being an ex-model, you know, working walking the Naomi Campbell kind of thing. You know, it's just it's there's a lot of stuff in there. But he's fetishes and also the radical homelessness, the idea of, of timelessness, the idea of timelessness is a big thing, you know, <laughs> and, and Sun Ra, you know, Afrofuturism. There's a lot mm-hmm. compacted in this little, mm-hmm. this this little 17-minute kind of essay on something, back to what we were saying earlier on, around trying to create a space mm-hmm. which is about us. <laughs> mm-hmm. We come from several different places all at the same time. Yeah. We are, inhabit several different places and we express lots of different things at the same time. Mm-hmm. But we don't express the sort of thing that Western uh, white culture has prescribed. And that's where, and because what happens when they do it is that we end up with things like BAME. So <laughs> it's kind of like, <laughs> it's kind of like, but also, I guess there's also the sexuality of masculinity, which I'm, obviously I'm very invested in. You know, and like the idea that black masculinity and vulnerability are can inhabit the same space is is seen as a radical thing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it goes back to you know uh, Joseph Bean, black men loving black men is the revolutionary act. He actually said black men loving black men is the revolutionary act of the eighties. Uh, and when people hear that, they tend, because it's said by a gay man, they mm-hmm. think, oh, it's all about, you know, sex. Mm-hmm. But no, it, I think it's more about how we, that radical black love is for our women as well. This, I would say women involved in this, but in terms but the notion of two men having affection for each other, mm-hmm. you know, in a public way, is a radical thing because we're supposed to be killing each other, you know, mm-hmm. or punching each other or undermining each other. Mm-hmm. We can't express love. I'm talking about 
I'm not talking about just sexual love. I'm talking about, you know, affection, love, brotherliness, brotherliness. Whether we are fathers, sons, cousins, nephews, husbands, um, lovers, you know, um, brothers. So I think it's, so there's all that, all this stuff is going on in my head when I made that film. Um, and so that's why I feel it, it resonates because it's not just a, a tall, you know, athletic looking black man who's naked walking around. It's, it's, it's somebody else. It's something else. It has, he has this kind of like, he, he resonates this kind of energy. And then all of what I'm saying, it's not a, it goes into it, but we're not seen in that way. And, and so, you know, that's a very interesting thing. Um, and so uh, I'm hoping, the problem, the problem is, you see, because it's got, you know, it's quite explicit. And, um, but I think, you know, it's interesting. Francis Bacon, you know, you look at Francis Bacon's imagery with women with, you know, they're completely naked and there's a focus on, the, the, you know, the vagina in different ways. You look at the Renaissance page. You look at, you know, Raphael. You know, I just find it really interesting when you put a black male on, black male body naked on a, on a, on a, a large canvas, mm. everyone starts to think of it as being... Something that is, you know, it's, it's not positive imagery. You can't do that. Mm. And I think that's interesting. I'm, I think it'd be interesting to um, to see how it stands the test of time in the way that Homecoming has done. Mm. I'm, I want one thing 20 years or 25 years, was my first film made, does is you start to you go, oh, wow, actually, this is a timeless piece. Mm. I didn't know it was going to be a timeless piece but because it's an honest piece. So I'm, I'm interested to see, are we interested to see in 10 to 15 years' time whether fetish becomes something that people can just watch mm. without it being, oh my God, there's a black naked man. And it becomes yeah. something that is, you know what I'm saying? And mm. I just think, I, I mean, if it doesn't, it doesn't, it's fine. It's, I'm not crying about it, but I, I feel that's why it makes a lot of impact and people have been really affected by that mm. film. Very, I mean, like I've had people from around the world DM me and say how much they've been affected by that film. I think that uh, I think he, I think Fetish exists. Mm. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's very interesting because listening to you talk, um, I, I, I mean, this thing about the black body is never neutral. I, I think I remember going to see Toni Morrison talk once. Um, I think her book Americana had come out and somebody was asking her about her literature. And she said, you know, she she has is someone that has looked towards African writers a lot. Chinua Achebe, Yole, Wale Soyinka. But mm. she was saying, you know, um, African-American writers write sort of with the white gaze in mind, like Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. Well, invisible mm. to whom? Do you know what mm. I mean? Mm. And and what Toni Morrison was saying was this sense that she, her work is for black people. She's not, she doesn't consider herself or us as other. And I find you're the same. You, you know, so I wonder whether part of this sort of violent reaction that people have at times to your work is because you're like, well, 
I, I'm not othered. This is, you know what I mean? And I, and I find it very interesting, you know, the way you talk about fetish being almost like a, a, a person that refuses to be othered. And, you know, because you're not, in, you know, in the sense of invisible, well, I'm not invisible. Invisible to whom? I'm, I am, you know, and I, and I move in this world, which again, I, I find it, I don't know. I find it disruptive again. I keep coming back to that word. But what I'm trying to say when I say that is that I don't feel like you are being disruptive on purpose. It's not It's not that. It's your choosing. I'll give you an example. I have this song. It's the only way I can think of um, explaining it. I have this song that I started writing that I go back to. And, and I think I started writing it in maybe three years ago. Um, and there, and it was uh, it was around sort of all the you know I think the Tamir Rice all of this kind of stuff and I remember I was on the tube uh, tube platform and I remember seeing this black man and he was really you know he clearly did a lot of weightlifting was really strong and really tall but I remember looking at him and he feel like I felt like looking at him on the inside he felt really small. And I remember writing this line in the song. I said, the other day I saw a man in stature, he was huge, but his smallness, well, it made me want to cry. Sometimes we don't want to be firsts. Sometimes we just want to be. Sometimes we don't want to defend. Sometimes we just need to breathe. And I feel like your work is like that you're just being, and that is such a radical act in this day and age that you're just being. And that's what's so powerful to me. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you for seeing that, actually, Matsy, because um, I'm taking the time to see that because, you know, I don't, you know, we live and we breathe, don't we? We just, you know, we just kind of try and get up in the morning and get on with our lives mm-hmm. and we've got, we've got so many things, so many things are going on. But I think the art space is, I'm committed to it. I'm committed to this space as an artist mm-hmm. that says, you know, I'm, I'm, this is not a space I'm messing about with. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't. I, there's there's all sorts of things going on, but this space, I will, I will be free in. I will be free. Mm. You, it's not you're not going to do anything to me in this space. Mm. You know, so I guess in that sense, uh, yeah, I, I it's it's difficult. I mean, I, I'm I'm making another piece work now about uh, for um, visual aids in New York, um, which is part uh, which I, I have a conversation. I'm having a very personal conversation with HIV and AIDS. And the black diaspora, but I'm not having it in relation to the kinds of conversations, the sociological conversations. I'm not interested in. Again, I'm not necessarily interested in. Yeah, you know, there are statistics and that's all that sort of stuff, which I can, you know, that's a way in. But the actual conversation I want to have is about pleasure, mm-hmm. <laughs> and the reason I want to have that conversation because the people who there's lots of different things. Like I used to be a, a lay preacher for a minute, for about 10 minutes. Because, uh, uh, and um, so there's a lot of morality in our communities, black communities, right across the diaspora, uh, based upon the Christian mythology, mm-hmm. whichever from different kinds of dominations. But two things I would say. One, obviously I'm not Christian, and I reject that. Mm-hmm. And two we need to understand the construction of our sexuality mm-hmm. through that lens. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. And then we need to understand how we stigmatise ourselves mm-hmm. around things to do with what isn't isn't correct to do as black people sexually. Mm-hmm. You know, and also there's a whole stuff. So I'm, I'm having reading around this, I'm thinking about this in terms of my little film that I'm making, 
because I want to do that again. I want to be able to say what I really feel, mm-hmm. and 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 the you know the freedom to do that as an artist is I, I claim it. I claim it like a you know very 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 strongly. Mm. In the same way, the capitalists claim our money. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. the same way that the politicians kind of like restrict our lives. You know, we we you know this world is made up. Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. It's a lie. It's all a lie. Mm-hmm. It's all a lie. Mm-hmm. It don't mean nothing. Mm-hmm. Yes, be a good boy or girl or non-binary person or trans person. Be be that. But just know, but know this world is a lie. Mm-hmm. So the first thing, if you can work from that premise, then you can start to see what you really see. And if you can start to see what you really see and experience, you can start to express it. And that's mm-hmm. kind of that's where I sit. Mm-hmm. So so yeah, Tony Morrison is incredibly beloved. I mean, it's like. You know, the opening of Beloved, mm. where she spends 50 pages talking about what it feels like to be on the plantation. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I want to, it's almost me once I want to cry. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's incredible writing. Mm-hmm. And I'm blessed to be, you know, we're blessed to be at the age where we could have read it 10 or 15 years ago and now read it now and then read it in 10 or 15. Yeah. Because she just does that. She... I can't say, I can't, because <laughs> of the no swear, swear, swear policy, I can't say. But when you discover what those men are doing yeah. to those cows mm. in that reality, because mm. of their masculinity had been castrated mm. in that system and what they do for pleasure mm. as black men, mm. my days, as young black men, you know, mm. when when they are... I thought about this as well. We we are we're too old to be enslaved. Mm. They won't be bothered with us now. Your eye, but when we were like 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, maybe up to about possibly up to twenty-two. Yeah, that's when we are at our height. Mm. And those young kids were in those little mm. plantations, trying to become men. And then they had to, what they were doing was. You know, it, and and but the way that she talks about mm. that is very much about their space and their experience. Mm. You know, so I, I, yeah, that's us. You know, that's us in that yes, context. Yes, yes, but yes. when you when you free ourselves from time, which is the other thing I'm interested in, when you stop talking about this this the construct that we're in as if it as if it as if it's solid. You know, when you start to realize it's just an era, an epoch, mm-hmm. then you get you, you're free, you're liberated, mm-hmm. you're liberated. Mm-hmm. You can do anything, you can go anywhere, yeah. you can travel across the universe, yeah. you can come backwards and forwards in time, you can do whatever you like. Mm-hmm. So I'm very, very much interested in that as well. I'm very much interested in understanding the constructs and the programming, mm-hmm. and then blowing it open. Yeah. So, yeah. so tell me, as I always ask everyone. What lessons have you learned that we can learn from? What lessons have I learned? Mm, or are learning within the context of all the stuff we're talking about? I guess I've learned that, that a lot of the things that you thought would go away when you were young would be resolved or somehow be get better. Don't. What I have learned is that you then can make certain choices about those things. You can either... Choose inhabit and be empowered, or to or, or to be overcome. 
and back to, well, actually, it wasn't Alice Walker. It was somebody, uh, sorry, um, it wasn't Tony Morrison. It was another Black American, African-American writer, I, I remember. And Desha Idame Holland. Okay, I didn't know her. She's a playwright. And she, I mean, she must was probably quoting a saying from the Deep South, mm-hmm. which is either the you throw the ball or the ball throws you. Mm-hmm. So it's really about kind of look. I mean, I've experienced you know depression and and and, and worry and all sorts of things. I've I've experienced failure and I've experienced triumphs. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can make a decision about what you want to experience. Mm-hmm. So you can throw that ball, or the ball can throw you. So I've learned that. I, as long as I'm conscious of that and I can I can throw that ball, I'm going to throw that ball, mm-hmm. which means I'm going to define the life that I want to live. Mm-hmm. And that's what I've learned. I've learned that it doesn't get better. It becomes both better and worse. And you've just got to find a way of, of kind of moving through it mm-hmm. with an empowered way. But I've also learned that I've also learned that what's lovely about being on the planet or mm-hmm. going around the sun up to 50 years is is the idea that you are things just change, you know. Mm. Things change. And and you see this kind of like incredible, the things that you thought would never change, change, and the things that you think would change, don't change. So I've learned, I've learned, I've learned that really. And what was the other question? Have I gone too, was no, that too long? No. Too much? No. It was what um, lessons have you learned that we can learn from when you said? Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's that. what I've learned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's, yeah. sorry, go ahead. No, no, that's it really. I mean, and, and the thing is, what I'm, I'm blessed in the sense I've always, I've still, I think one of the key key uh, human qualities as an artist, even just as a person, really, is to be curious and to come to, to come from a place of not knowing. Mm. I mean, I think obviously you, you accumulate experience and knowledge and certain certain certainties and mm. skills, especially if you're in the arts or you're an artist. You, you experience your experience is craft as well, I'm interested in being a craft person, so I know I know how to create things from a craft person's craft mm-hmm. point of view. But you always have to start from a place of unknowing and a place of curiosity. Mm-hmm. And um yeah, and, and if you do that, then you pretty much you pretty much can live mm. you know, you can live a life which you can really enjoy, I think. Yeah. I think if you if you if you inhabit a space of fixed ideas around things and you got to this place and this is the way things are and this is how things should be and and just you know if you start if you kind of move into that paradigm then you you're probably going to come up against quite a lot of things that you're not going to be able to cope with because life isn't like that Mm -hmm. (laughs) you're going to come up with a you're going to come up against a lot of things that you're going to be really not happy with totally 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 yeah but for creatives, I think it's a good place to be. Be curious and come being in a place of not knowing. Yeah. Yeah. So, my last question. What music are you listening to? Oh, good question. Okay, so um, I actually listened to some Dudu Bukwana the other day, which I haven't nice. listened to for ages. I always listen to Fella. I listen to some of the New Age stuff, New Age kind of like hip-hop, people like Earth Gang and Spillage Village. Sort of a, a whole range of things, really. Um, that's it at the that's moment. Good. I mean, I, I'm, I'm always I'm always listening to house music because mm-hmm. I'm a house music boy. <laughs> um, whether it be South African house or whether it be you know, you know, North American or British house. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, that's it. lovely. Yeah. You know, this is what I love about being a creative person: is the people I get to meet. 
and you're somebody that I love. It's so far. I don't know why I'm very teary at the moment. And you're somebody that I love so much. Oh, bless. Oh, bless you. Like I, you know, beyond you being an artist, I love you. Oh, I love you too. Yeah. So <laughs> I do. <laughs> yeah. No, and I feel, I feel like every time I think of you, I just like, oh, I just love him. I just love him. And so thank you so much for sharing your story, sharing your process, sharing your passions, sharing who you are are with me um, and with us, with the listeners. I I really appreciate it. I really appreciate the space you've given me to to talk and to share because it's it's one of the most, yeah, it's it's really lovely, actually, to have this honour to just in this moment because, yeah. It's important. It's very important to keep these interventions alive. Yeah. So thank you. Thank very you. Much. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you, Toby yeah. Campbell. Thank you so much to Topher Campbell. To find out more about his work and how you can support his latest project, Encounters, head to the links in the podcast blurb. Thank you for listening. Holding Up the Ladder is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Please share, like, subscribe to the podcast, leave comments. We also want to hear from you about any initiatives, individuals or organisations you know of that are using the arts and creativity to champion social change. You can DM us on Twitter at H-U-T-L underscore or Instagram holding up the ladder hashtag H-U-T-L or email us at contacthutl at gmail.com. Thank you again to our sponsors, Airbnb. To learn more about the work they're doing and why they're supporting Holding Up the Ladder, head to the links in the podcast blurb. Next week, we're talking about fashion, art, about the creative personality. We're talking about normalising the black family and how the ordinary can in fact be an act of radical resistance. With children's fashion stylist, blogger, artist, wife and mum of two, Evadne Davis. So my activism is showing my life, is showing Mm. us, is showing us thriving. So when I say that I'm raising my kids to know themselves, to have that confidence, we have the art around the culture, the music, the books that I give them, the experiences. It's about them knowing that they are allowed to thrive. Mm. I think a racist doesn't want to see black people thriving Mm. they don't want to see uh, a black family with two you know parents who have careers and dreams and are making things and kids who are just happy and giggling and playing in the sunshine Mm. and free and unburdened Mm. they hate to see that and yet that is my life until next time